You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, February 16th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald speaks with Watershed Coordinator Maggie Sullivan and Liminal Researcher Sarah Powers about issues with the Lake Monroe Reservoir. More on that in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, virtual unreality on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment with Richard Fish. More following today's feature. But first, your environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Wednesday, February 16th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Late last month, police investigated the conditions at an alpaca farm near Owen County, Indiana, and discovered multiple malnourished animals, including horses, chickens, dogs, and alpacas. Overall, there were a total of 28 dead alpacas found on the property. The Indiana State Board on Animal Health sent a registered veterinarian to find out what the conditions were like on the farm, and the veterinarian found them to be unacceptable, thus causing the police to get involved. Supaca Farms LLC had never been under any scrutiny previously, and it is currently not understood how conditions got so bad on the farm. The Owen County prosecutor is looking over the medical records and police reports before determining whether criminal charges should be pursued. Cleveland Cliffs, the owner of the steelmaker ArcelorMittal plant, along a tributary of Lake Michigan, must pay $3 million for the environmental damages done when the plant dispelled millions of gallons of cyanide-laden wastewater into a nearby river. The contamination resulted in 3,000 dead fish floating along the river, caused the shutdown of all public beaches including the Indiana Dunes, and closed the nearby water treatment plant thus directly affecting the drinking water supply. The plant had previously violated environmental laws over 100 times and did not notify environmental agencies when the cyanide, with an estimated amount of 25 times the permitted levels, was sent into the environment. Activists believe that this will send a message to big polluters to be more careful about what they are pouring into our states, lakes, and rivers. A brand new discovery has brought excitement for the world's understanding of marine ecosystems. Oceanographers found a pristine coral reef off the coast of the island of Tahiti that had never been seen before. Surprisingly, the reef has been completely unaffected by human activity, including from sources such as pollution or ocean acidification. Scientists are rejoicing because of how important coral reefs are to oceans, as they are home to a quarter of all marine species and without them, many would go extinct. Similarly, 
Humans depend on the reefs for food and income, with reefs contributing billions of dollars to economies around the world. This discovery has encouraged researchers to continue searching in unlikely places to find even more hidden reefs. That's all for your environmental news brief. For WFHP, I'm Nathaniel Weinsapfel. At the Ellettsville Town Council meeting on February 14th, council members discussed the future of sick leave and time off payout for the staff. Council member Scott Oldham suggested that the council look into alternatives to use unpaid time off. Clerk Treasurer Sandra Hash replied to his questions. In Ellettsville, the PTO and the sick time is separated, is it not? It is. We don't currently pay out sick time at the end of someone's career, do we? No, we do not. We can't afford to. Well, maybe yes, maybe no. So the question becomes, (laughs) you pay it out a little over time or you pay it out a lot at the end because you have some employees that leave with a lot of sick time, meaning they have not taken off at all sick in their last however many years. Um, But what we traditionally see is, you know, employees who know they're going to retire at a certain date start bleeding off sick time as they should, but that results in overtime costs to us generally because we're having to backfill for those. Um, and again, I can't put a number to it because Sandy's going to not be unhappy. She's just being realistic. We maybe need to look at something where we're buying out sick time that's left rather than just, you know, allowing people to run up and then they just lose it because we're paying for it one way or the other. Hash responded, saying that the town of Ellettsville doesn't have enough funding saved up to pay out staff members for their unused paid time off. Well, just remember, we do unlimited sick time. So there's people who get to retirement and have three or four thousand hours of sick time. So it would definitely take some calculation. I've always tried to tell employees it's like a guaranteed insurance policy because we've had a lot of people not a lot, but several who have had to have extended absences. And because of our sick leave policy, they didn't miss a single paycheck. And that's a wonderful thing. In the private industry, it's unheard of. So I understand what you're saying, and I'm not saying it's not possible, but we definitely need to have some help figuring it out and, and realize the liability that we're setting up because when I pay out someone for, you know, 596 hours, 594, that is uh, a couple of months pay. And that means that that department can't replace that employee. We don't have that um, bank of money saved up. So they have the employee can't be replaced until we work through that payout period, which can take three months sometimes. Oldham said that he wasn't trying to bankrupt the town, but that they should consider adjustments moving forward. The council also heard from utilities operation manager Mike Farmer about increasing the sewer connection fee from $1,500 to $2,500. Just a little history. Uh, when we did a rate study back in 17, 2017, 2018, 2017, I believe, and even before that, um, our um, Rate consultants 
um, uh, we, we, we talked about raising them back then and we considered $2,500, which uh, we all kind of come to an agreement on, but it was even suggested that they be even more uh, considering the cost of um, capacity and keeping capacity in the plant and, and making sure our future um, is insured uh, with monies to uh, rehabilitate or replace the wastewater plant. Um, currently, we're in fairly decent shape as far as capacity goes, but as we grow and we grow faster than we have, um, we need to plan for the future. This, this fee only is attributed to new starts on building. It does not affect our existing customers at all, and it's pretty much in line uh, if not lower than uh, most of um, or a lot of different towns and cities in the state of Indiana. The board will vote on the fee increase at the next Ellettsville Town Council meeting, which will be held on February 28th. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald speaks with Watershed Coordinator Maggie Sullivan and liminal researcher Sarah Powers about issues with the Lake Monroe Reservoir. For more, we turn to WFHB Environmental News Correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald. Recently, there have been complaints from Monroe County residents regarding the foul taste of tap water within their homes. The main reservoir for Bloomington and Monroe County is Lake Monroe, which is a common source for recreational activities for members of the Bloomington community. To learn more about this issue with the lake, WFHB News spoke with Sarah Powers, a liminal scientist at Indiana University. The amount of cyanobacteria in the lake has been pretty constant over time. So it's not a new issue that we're seeing. Due to nutrient inputs from the watershed is a primary source of where that's coming from, as well as nutrients in the lake and in the sediments. You're going to have background nutrients there. We'll feed the algae. And the algae is completely including the cyanobacteria, which are actually a photosynthetic bacteria, not necessarily an algae per se, uh, but we kind of loop them all in together. But they're a natural part of the food chain. So they should be there and they're very healthy and good. It's good to have a nice, diverse community of algae. They're the basis of the food chain. Very critical. It's just when we the nutrients start to exceed some point, they can grow in overabundance. And as we're seeing warmer temperatures, warmer temperatures later into the summer, we're starting to increase the amount of total algae. With many local complaints regarding the tap water in Bloomington, watershed experts and professionals, including Sarah Powers, set out to Lake Monroe to test its waters for what might be the source of this issue. From what the data could find, the lake and its watershed have been experiencing larger algal blooms in its waters since September of 2021, likely causing the foul taste in its tap water. Sarah Powers elaborates on how she and her team obtained this data and what it means for the lake. 
So we sampled in the lake in the summer of 2020. We also did stream monitoring into the lake for once a month for a year. So that was our portion. And then we also coordinated a volunteer uh, sample blitz for citizen scientists to come out and sample 125 stream sites throughout the watershed. That provided the background data so that they could find... So in order to write the management plan, you need the data to support it. So what is the state of the lake? Then the watershed coordinator, Maggie Sullivan, did a lot of data analysis of it. So she went back and she compared it to historical reports. She found all the historical data that existed as much as she could gather and then did a lot of comparison analysis from past summaries. How has it changed? And I don't think they found a huge amount of change over time. But there are still potential issues in those areas to improve. While this doesn't make the drinking water toxic or harmful, it still presents an issue for the residents who perhaps can't afford to have their water filtered, or those who would be forced to purchase bottled water, which is less heavily regulated by the EPA, instead of utilizing their home's tap water. The algal bacteria found in Lake Monroe is what is known as cyanobacteria, According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, also known as the EPA, cyanobacteria is a microorganism, also known as blue-green algae, found in freshwater ecosystems that can produce harmful algal blooms or toxins. They have the ability to harm aquatic ecosystems, drinking water supply, and people who come in close contact via recreational activities such as swimming or fishing. Sarah Powers further explains why this form of cyanobacteria is posing a threat to Lake Monroe's reservoir and watershed. As we see increases in temperature, longer summers, fluctuations in the amount of rainfall, it changes the amount of algae and when we're seeing more. So now we're seeing it later into the growing season. Historically, it was more of a July-August problem. Now it's lingering into September-October, right, where we're seeing longer blooms. Luckily, Friends of Lake Monroe, a local nonprofit dedicated to the protection of the lake, has developed a management plan to address the issue of growing cyanobacteria in Lake Monroe. This management plan is a long-term goal to prevent the lake from producing any excess algae, and so it can continue to keep Bloomington's water source clean and healthy. Because of the nature of this plan and the lake, this plan won't see any noticeable changes for at least a decade or so. Watershed coordinator Maggie Sullivan and her team at Friends of Lake Monroe created this watershed management plan in which she expands on in more detail. So I work for Friends of Lake Monroe, the local nonprofit, and we've been working for the last two years to develop a watershed management plan for the lake. There wasn't one before this, and we got a grant to do it, and part of it was doing a lot of water quality monitoring and collecting samples. It was also talking with the community to see what people's concerns were, looking at other available data, um, actually getting out in the watershed and looking to see what the streams look like that are coming into the lake. So we gathered all that data together and created this watershed management plan that lays out a 20-year action plan for how do we protect and improve water quality in the lake. And one of the things that was driving this process of why we felt this was important is the increasing occurrence of harmful algal blooms. 
Because the city of Bloomington has not declared any official warning regarding the algal blooms in Lake Monroe, one can assume that these blooms have not reached the toxicity levels required to be harmful in the city's drinking water supply. Unfortunately, there isn't much the city of Bloomington can do in terms of policy or legislation, simply due to the fact that Lake Monroe Watershed does not fall completely within Monroe County lines. It actually falls within four other county lines as well, making it difficult for local governments to mandate any sort of legislation over the watershed. Maggie Sullivan explains the nuances of these county lines and how that affects local and state legislation. One of the challenges of watershed work is that watersheds span multiple jurisdictions. So the Lake Monroe watershed is 440 square miles, and about half of that's in Brown County. Then there's about a quarter in Monroe and about a quarter in Jackson. Okay. So we're already talking about three different counties involved. And then we have the town of Nashville. We have part of the city of Bloomington. And then we start looking at who owns the land. And there's a lot of it that's owned by the U.S. Forest Service or the Indiana State Department of Natural Resources or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who owns the actual lake. Mm -hmm. And so you're talking about a lot of different groups that have jurisdiction. So one of our goals is to get them all collaborating together and saying, here, we have this plan now. We know what we need to do. So let's work together to make that happen. We haven't identified specific policy changes yet, but that is one possibility. I know Monroe County is updating their development ordinances right now. And they have specific protections for watersheds. The ecozone, so around Lake Monroe, Lake Griffey, and Lake Lemon, have a little more restrictions on how you can develop to try and reduce the likelihood of getting that sediment and those nutrients into the lakes. While these algal blooms have not greatly impacted the reservoir yet, especially during the winter months, this begs the question of whether these blooms will become more toxic or will this cause the lake to further eutrophy? Maggie Sullivan explains the science behind this question and what it means for Lake Monroe. So Lake Monroe is mildly eutrophic right now. If we don't do anything, there's a chance it could get more eutrophic, meaning as higher nutrient levels and more common harmful algal blooms. So our goal is to reduce the nutrient load, and we would expect to see less harmful algal blooms once we do that. With the caveat that that's a long-term process, partly because making changes in the watershed to reduce the nutrient levels takes a lot of time and effort in getting people to change behaviors, and partly because we also know there are legacy nutrients in the lake, and those are nutrients that are down in the sediments at the bottom of the lake that have accumulated over time, and so those could still be released, as I was talking about with the lake stratification, when oxygen levels drop at the bottom of the lake, bacteria will release some of those nutrients and then they'll circulate back into the water. While the cyanobacteria in Lake Monroe is cause for concern, we still have organizations like Friends of Lake Monroe and wonderful scientists like Sarah Power willing to help the Bloomington community and make our city a safer place for everybody here. If you'd like more information on Friends of Lake Monroe, please go to their website at friendsoflakemonroe.org. For WFHB News, I am Sophia Fitzgerald. Up next, Virtual Unreality on Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. 
Host and producer Richard Fish says virtual reality is the latest uber cool digital experience, but the Fire Sign Theater predicted it over half a century ago. Richard Fish has more. Welcome to Better Beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. Virtual reality is the latest uber-cool digital experience, but the Firesign Theater predicted it over half a century ago. Tropical paradise. I think I'll give it a try. Wow, what a groove, a tropical paradise. Today, millions of people are buying expensive headsets that project three-dimensional images into their eyes and sounds into their ears, trying to answer the question the Firesign guys propounded in 1968. How can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all? But aside from making you look like an early model Darth Vader, virtual reality headsets are proving to be dangerous in real reality. The effect is so realistic that publications like the Wall Street Journal are reporting an increasing number of people being rushed to the emergency room after some kind of a session in the all-immersive world of VR. One of the most common problems is simply walking into a wall. Some of the virtual gadgets and games now have a feature called a chaperone that will show users a virtual wall when they approach a real one. But this feature is just horizontal. In a VR game called Fantastic Contraption, the virtual goal is above you, and one player jumped for it and smashed the controller into the ceiling, wrecking the controller and damaging the ceiling. Another game has you standing on a pillar in a large arena, fighting. In the virtual world, you can't fall, but the developers noticed a problem because their offices were on the 18th floor and they had a balcony outside. People have punched each other in the face and cut themselves, or they punch furniture. One fellow smashed a vase his wife prized and her reaction was not at all virtual. The Occupational and Biomechanics Research Lab at Oregon State University has identified a syndrome called Gorilla Arm, caused by violently sticking your arms forward and straining your shoulders. A man in North Carolina dislocated his shoulder and needed expensive physical therapy. And some guy in Germany actually broke his own neck, making violent real moves in unreal virtual space. Scariest of all, a woman logged into Meta's Horizon Worlds and encountered several male avatars who subjected her avatar to a virtual gang rape. In virtual reality, you'd better virtually beware. You can go anywhere, but you can't be sure who you're going to meet. Tibetan wilderness? Land of the pharaohs. Land of the pharaohs. That sounds great. All right, all right. Here we are in the land of the pharaohs. Oh, no! <laughs> I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. 
Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. Support for the WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Nathaniel Weinsapfel and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Sophia Fitzgerald. Better Beware is produced by Richard Fish. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for cool solutions. Climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 